Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. before you to 1 Peter chapter 1, the passage read earlier, verses 22 through 25. Uh, This morning we come to the fourth imperative of the chapter. Uh, I had already suggested to you the other three. Um, That is, given the uh, sweep of what God had done in salvation and bringing us to live as exiles in a strange and foreign land, Uh, so we live in worship and we live in faith, Uh, then we are challenged by the four imperatives in the Greek text, uh, and that is that um, we would come before God and that we would set our hope fully on the grace of God. With no other foundation for our entry into the presence of God except for His grace. Then that we would be holy. As God is holy, we would be holy. On top of that, then, that we would live in fear, that is, live in the fear of God. We had a little bit of pushback on that. Uh, It's not something that that comes to us with a great deal of joy and anticipation until we understand that to fear God is the other side of loving God. And fearing God is a necessary component to knowing God. And so uh, we were called to Uh, live in the fear of God. This morning we come to the fourth and final imperative of the chapter. It's uh, found in verse 22 where Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, what I want you to know is that I get it. You get it too. We're supposed to love each other. I mean, isn't that what churches talk about? Isn't that why we get together and we talk about how we're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to be sympathetic to each other and and understanding to each other? Uh, this, This command that comes to us in Scripture that says love one another, we're pretty much set on that. We get it. We understand that there's something about the Christian tradition, the Christian faith that calls us to this point where we should love one another. We understand that to be a Christian is to be um, in a uh, setting in which we worship the God who said, I am the, uh, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. It is to love Jesus Christ who said the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. We get that. We get that uh, when we come together as believers in Christ, we are acknowledging that God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so because he loved us, we love others. We love because he first loved us. We get that. We understand that this commandment to love one another is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. So there's nobody here this morning who's surprised to find out that God expects you to love one another. Anybody really surprised on that one? I mean, absolutely baffled. I can't figure out why he would say such a thing. No, it's there. We're we're pretty much committed to that. We understand that. You know, the thing is, the world, not quite there, but they're almost there too. The world's in favor of loving people. Isn't that a nice thing to do? After all, we live in the generation 
Well, my generation was the Coca-Cola, I'd like to teach the world to sing, you know, all, all that sort of thing, kumbaya. Um, I don't know what that would be today. All right, we don't have time to pursue that. But, but the thing is, we, yeah. <laughs> and I love you, Lord. <laughs> but we, we get it, the world pretty much gets it, the world celebrates, yeah, let's love, love. You know, love is a great thing. And then we start to talk about the meaning of love. You know, what does it mean to love somebody? And, and we're pretty well there, well, there too. We understand we ought to love one another, and you know, we pretty much know what to do in order to love somebody. We pretty much know that to love a person is to be sympathetic, that is to have some kind of, of, of feeling along with them in their heartache. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we know that is the case. It's hard to do sometimes with things going well with somebody, you know, just stand up and cheer, hey, that's great. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We understand that that's a part of love, that when somebody's hurting, you, you sit down with them, and, you, and you, you, you just sort of hug together and hold hands, and you, and you try to go through life's pain together. So rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We understand that. We pretty much get that. We know we're supposed to do that. And, you know, even in our better moments, we know that in order to love somebody, we ought to wash their feet. We know that this picture of love that it comes to us from John chapter 13, that Jesus laid aside his garments, took a towel and a basin, and he went from disciple to disciple to disciple, and he washed their feet. He even washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, you know, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. We understand that that's what love means sometimes. You know, that love requires us to be willing to get on our hands and knees and to be a servant, to be giving. That's what it means to love. And in our best moments, we understand that to love means something about the cross, that Jesus died on the cross when we were sinners and alienated from God and hostile to God and enemies with God, and Jesus died for us at that moment in our lives. And so we come to understand that love means loving even when people aren't particularly uh, attractive at the moment. And we understand that it means things like dying to self in order to serve the other. So we know what love means. And then it gets even harder. <coughs> when love means turning the other cheek and the other cheek and the other cheek and the other cheek. And we remember that Peter said, Jesus, how many times should I turn the other cheek? Oh, he said, how many times should I forgive my brother when he asked? But it was the same thing. How many times do I have to put up with somebody who's going to take advantage of me? Peter said, I think seven times is a pretty good number. Jesus said, well, Peter, I think 70 times seven would be a better number. And Peter, I don't think you can get that high in your county. So in our good moments, we understand what love means. So that pretty much takes care of the sermon. You ought to love each other. Got it. Here's what it means. Sympathy, empathy, rejoicing, weeping together, serving, forgiving, countless forgiving. We got it. Pretty much there. We're pretty much done. We know we should love, and we're pretty good on how we should love. The problem is, how do we get from knowing what we ought to do 
to the motivation to do it. How do we get from knowing that I should love somebody and even knowing how I should love that person, how do I get from there to the point where I actually take the steps forward and begin to love them? Because I think that's where the issue is. The issue isn't knowledge and definitions. The issue is how do I come to the point where I will love my brother, love my sister, earnestly, fervently, with a pure heart. And that's what we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 1 um, this morning. Peter, writing to these folks, he's already told them, live in holiness, uh, live in grace, live in holiness, live in fear. And now he says, I want you to live in love. I want you to live in the extraordinary love that Christ calls us to do. Now, when the Bible has something that it commands us of, it's hardly ever because we're already doing it. You can just about be sure when the Bible tells us to do something, it's because we're not doing it, because it doesn't come naturally, because we need that spur and that encouragement. Now, Peter gives us two foundations, if you will, two supporting pillars underneath the commandment to love. The commandment is there, love one another with a, a fervently, earnestly, with a, with a pure heart. But on either side, before it and after it, are two reasons, two pillars that support the the, uh, the motivation and how we get to that point of loving one another. Let me read the passage to you. It says, having purified your souls by obedience to the word, uh, to the truth, for sincerely brotherly love, having purified your souls, that's the first undergirding uh, motive, the undergirding impetus for us to love one another. He says, and then love one another earnestly. And then verse 23, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an impurity perishable seed. In other words, Peter says that you've got these two motivations to love. Here's how you get from the knowledge that you should love to the actual loving of one another. It's through the purification of the soul. It's through being born again with an imperishable seed. Now, this love, as we look at it, it's a grand idea. It's a great idea. But it's an idea that we leave out too often. We honor it in words, but we don't honor it in deed. It is so vital and central to Christian life that Paul said, loving within the marriage, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He said that marriage relationship becomes a reflection of, of God's love for you. That's how vital it is. He said this this kind of love to which you and I are called is a love that will show that we know Christ Jesus. Now, this notion of love, this notion of love is, is not something that uh, uh, um, the, the world will understand. You know, it's not as though the Greeks uh, had a pantheon of gods, all of whom loved them. I mean, none of the Greeks ever thought to themselves, wow, Jupiter loves me, this I know. <laughs> that was an alien foreign concept that God would love them comes out of the Bible, comes nowhere else, by the way. You don't find it in any other religion like that. So, um, we are called to love, and here are the two foundations of it. Now, the first foundation is the purification of the soul. That is, having who you are deep down within uh, cleansed of all the dirt and all the filth of the world. 
that is having the soul just just wiping out, cleaning, polishing, so it's spick and span clean from the things of the world. Moreover, it is ridding ourselves of the morality, the values, the priorities of the world. Even more, it is ridding ourselves of the way of the world's relationships. See, the world knows about love, but usually it's a love for what I can get, a love for what's in it for me, a love that at the very best is an exchange. You give me, I give you. We sort of have this this, uh, mutual treaty that we love each other on a balanced basis. The love of the world is a love that comes conditioned, not unconditioned. You ever hear people talk about unconditioned love, unconditional love? You hear that a lot. You don't necessarily hear it from Christians. Do you know where people get that? You know where they get that? In, in America today, where did people get the idea that unconditional love is a neat idea? Where did that come from? Did it come from our Teutonic ancestors? I'm of Germanic descent, so I bring that up. You know, it's not like the, you know, in the, in the northern forests of Germany, back in the Middle Ages, people decided, ah, this would be a great thing, uh, unconditional love. No, they had no idea of that. There was no notion at all in the idea of my Germanic ancestors that Thor loved them with unconditional love. I bring up Thor because he's one of the heroes of these days. But there's no idea that. It it didn't come out of the Celts. It's not like the Saxons ever talked about the unconditional love of God. Didn't come from the Huns who invaded Europe. It didn't come from the Arabs who got as far as Vienna and Tours. Where did it come from? It came from the Bible. came from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the only place you find it. You don't find it from the other cultures and nations that have also shaped American culture and life from all around the world, people coming uh, to, 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 to this land, and together we learn from each other and we appreciate one another. But nowhere do you find the notion of unconditional love save in the Scriptures and save because of the Bible, because of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this notion of unconditional love is very much at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And so when uh, Peter says, have a pure soul, suke is the word there, a a pure being, being a pure person, he's saying, get in line with God's definition of love, not with the world's definition of love. That means our love is not going to be prejudicial. It's not going to be based on class, prejudice, race. Our love will not exclude anyone. When you start to think about love being the result of God's purifying work in the heart of the believer, you start to understand that love really does have no limits. And real love really does um, go way above and beyond what we would do. And so this purity uh, comes to us. And the purified life in the life of the Christian, it's not like it's a slam dunk. You know, it's not like you say, wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'll purify my soul. Uh, you know, you call up a taxi, you send your soul out to the cleaners, it comes back uh, 24 hours later, dry clean, ready, pressed to put on. The, the, the purified soul, the life of purity is the life in the spirit. It's the life uh, of fear of God, the life of holiness before God, the life of hope in the grace of God. That's, that's what... Uh, 
a pure soul is. And so Peter says, having purified your soul by obedience to the word. Now let's hold that, uh, that phrase before us for just a moment. By obedience to the word, what does he mean by that? He goes on to explain that in the second pillar. But he says, for obedience, for, unto, into in the Greek, uh, uh, into a sincere brotherly love. Now the word for sincere there means without hypocrisy, literally means unhypocritical fear. Uh, a hypocrite literally means someone who speaks from behind a mask. It was a, a reference to an actor. And uh, an actor was someone who put on the facade, the mask of another person to play that role, but you never saw the real person, you just saw the role. That was a, a someone who spoke from behind the mask, hypocritas, and so uh, it was uh, a, uh, a hypocrite was someone who spoke behind a mask, you never saw them. Peter says this love that we have for one another is not going to be hypocritical. It's not going to be play acting. It's not going to be the kind of love that we trot out when it's just a little bit of, uh, 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 you know, to be convenient or to put on a show or to, or to impress other people. It's a love that's going to come from within. It's going to come from that purified soul that he just talked about. So that's the kind of love that we're talking about. But it comes by obedience to the word, and he explains what that means. In verse 23, you back up, he says, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Folks, there's a part of me that just wants to stop right now and glorify the Father. Here's why. He says, you've been born again, and the way you were born again was not with a perishable seed. It wasn't something put in you that started to grow, but someday it's going to die. He said, it's not something given to you that caused you to be born again and given you life, but you know, it just might wither away. It just might go away. He said, when you were born again, you were born again by a seed that will never perish. The new life you have in Christ is not uh, something that you hope to have someday, but it is rather a permanent reality established by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Our salvation in Christ is not something that, that, that can be taken away, but we are held in the Father's hand. Nobody can snatch us out. That when we were born uh, again, uh, that we believed in Christ and he caused us to be called and to become children of God, not by the will of man, but by the will of God himself. And so it's God's doing, God's will, God's seed, God's planning, God's birth. It's all of God and God does not change. God does not perish. We are born of an everlasting, imperishable, incorruptible seed. We are born again. Anybody who would like to praise God right now, just go right ahead. And so he says, because you were born again, because the old has passed away and all has become a new creation, the old things passing away, because there's been a radical difference made in your life by the grace of God. Love one another with a pure, sincere, clean heart. Now, there's one thing that's clear, and that is that Peter loves the doctrine of salvation. He just loves that doctrine. He spends the first 12 verses of, of, of the first chapter just talking about and extolling uh, the majesty of what God has done to save us. And then in the following verses, as we've looked at these last three weeks, have been verses about how that salvation works out in our lives. And when he comes to the end of that paragraph we let, read last week, verse 21, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You know, it's like he's writing down notes in the middle of a worship service. 
That's how keenly Peter loves the doctrine of salvation. And so when we are born again, that fills out the meaning of obedience to the truth. The gospel was preached to us. The Holy Spirit opened our hearts and our eyes to see the truth of Christ. The Spirit moved our hearts to put our trust, hope, and faith in Christ. And we confessed him as Lord and Savior, confessed our sins, and we were born again by the power of God's grace. And because we are born again, now love one another with a sincere heart. Now what is, what is this doing for us now? We already knew we should love each other. You know, we're pretty much sold on that. We already knew pretty much how to love one another because we've, we've read enough Scripture to know some of the mechanics of what love means. And in most situations, we pretty much know what the loving thing to do is. The question was, how do we get to the point of actually doing it? And Peter says, you don't. The Holy Spirit does it in you. You get to love, and you love somebody because the Holy Spirit has purified your heart. And because you've been born again by the power of God. And that seed by which you were born again is not perishable, but it's always a reality. And it's imperishable. And so when you're getting to that point where you're going to decide, you know, do I love, do I don't love, it's, it's the Holy Spirit of God that brings you to love somebody. Now, here's, here's the deal on that. To love somebody that way means that loving them is an act of praise and worship and thanksgiving to God for the way he has loved us. See, when you love somebody else this way, with that sincere heart, with a pure heart, without hypocrisy, when you love someone the way God calls us to love them, it is a response to the grace of God, and therefore it's worshiping God. It is glorifying the Father. It is honoring him. And so now we're looking at that situation. You know, there, there's that, that person, and they're so terribly hard to love. You know, you don't know anybody like that, but I do. They don't live in my house. Okay. Yeah. Do you know how dangerous preaching is? There's a person, and they're so hard to love. It's just, you know, every time you try to reach out, they slap you. Every time you, you, you try to include them, they just make life miserable. Every time you try to be understanding, uh, you know, they, they just refuse to be understood. Uh, when it, whenever you apologize, you've done nothing wrong, but you go and apologize, they accept your apology. You know, they just irritate the stew out of you. How do you go and love that person? Well, if you're just looking at it and say, how am I going to work up the, lo the love to, to love them again, you won't get there. But if you look at that situation, the challenge to love, and it dawns on you, how am I going to worship and glorify the Father today? How am I going to honor and glorify him with regard to this relationship? Completely transforms the motivation. Because you're going to come to that point. In fact, you're going to come to that point pretty soon. I suggest to you, you'll come to that point before the day is over. Or you're going to be confronted with the choice of whether or not to love somebody the way you ought to. For me, it came before the 8.30 service was over. I mean, seriously. I'm not going to tell you about it. I'll tell you later. <laughs> but I just had to laugh at myself out loud. I just finished a sermon preaching about the love of God and how, the, how it responds to the grace of the Father, causes us to love other people. And, I, and, you know, and it, it was just one of those little things that you think, wow, what are they doing that for? And God said, well, because I sent them into your life to find out if you were serious. <laughs> okay. 
But here's the deal. It's going to happen today. You will be asked to choose between loving somebody or just sort of going your own way. It's going to be that person that you just don't want to talk to. And so when they come into the room, you're just sort of walking out. And here's what's going to happen. The Spirit is going to say, what would you have done if Jesus had walked out on you when you came to the cross? And you're going to be ashamed of yourself. And you're going to turn around and you're going to go back and you're going to talk to that person and you're going to affirm them. You're going to love them. It's going to happen when you're sitting in one room, and this is hypothetical, and she's sitting in the other room, and you know she's wrong. <laughs> you know, it, it's just clear as a bell that she's wrong. You can prove she's wrong. You looked it up on the Internet. Um, <laughs> Siri said she was wrong. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm just not going to go. You know, it's her turn to do it. And, and God is going to say, what would happen if I had waited for you to apologize when you were wrong? And you're going to be ashamed of yourself. And you're going to get up and you're going to go be reconciled. It's going to happen. And here's the choice you're going to have. Peter talks about it. He describes that choice. This is in verse 23. Uh, the second pillar, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, and then he says, and here's the choice you have. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. You should understand, grass and I do not get along. Um, uh, grass is, is something for other people to mow and grow. I never understood the concept of a lawn, uh, you, you fertilize it so it grows faster and you have to mow it more often. Hence, you know, uh, don't feed the thing. <laughs> God made dirt too, okay? So, uh, but grass and I don't get along. But I do enjoy watching my neighbor's grass. It's not fair, but, uh, but in the sense of humor of life, I get to look at his yard, but he has to look at mine. So uh, that's fine. But I love to look at his yard. It's, it's immaculate. It's, 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 it's cut. You can play golf on it. You can putt on it. Uh, and there are, there are the bushes and the shrubbery, they're, they're just shaped and carved and, and all those other things. And, and the flowers are there, and they're wonderful, and they're beautiful to look at. And this is a marvelous, majestic sort of vision that we have. And Peter says, when you come to that choice, here's the choice you've got. The flesh is like grass. It might look great to you. You might love grass. You might love the green, green grass of home. Yeah, I mean, this, this grass might be the greatest thing you've ever seen. And the flowers have a glory to them and a beauty to them and a wonderful sort of nature to them. And that's what you've got. You've got the choice of the flesh and the choice of living out of yourself, and it will be wonderful and beautiful to you and glorious to you because all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. But let me tell you this, the grass withers and the flower falls and it's done and there's nothing to it. And when you have that choice, of whether you're going to be loving or not, you can choose the grass. You can choose the flesh. And it, it might be justified to other people, and they might say, yeah, you, you've got it. But it will wither, and it will fall, and you will have nothing. 
grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's the other choice you have, is the eternal, everlasting, always true, always powerful, never fading, never falling, never withering word of God that is absolutely trustworthy as you live in obedience to the truth, as, as Peter talked about that up in, in, uh, in the previous verse. He says, this, this word of the Lord never fails. It lasts forever. And oh, by the way, this is the word, this is the gospel that was preached to you. It is vitally connected to, it is of one piece with the gospel of salvation. It's not as though you can have, I want Jesus to be my Savior, and I want him to be my Lord, and I want him to take care of my life but I want to keep him out of this relationship over here because this word that calls you to love this person is the same word that called you to faith in Jesus Christ and they are absolutely connected and so before the day it is out when you are tempted to follow the grass and the flower understand that the word of God calls you to love now this is the motivation that gets us there this is what brings us to love one another. So those things, the Word of God, the gospel, the born-again experience resulting in a purity of the soul calls us out of thanksgiving, worship, and praise to love one another. But now look at the actual imperative. Verse uh, 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Uh, the word for pure there is a different word from purify up earlier. This word means clean. There's nothing there to, to, to uh, uh, you know, no mixture of the world in it. But he says, love one another with a sincere heart. I think the King James says fervently. See, when he says love one another, it's not just, okay, I'm going to love you now. Praise God I love you. He says, love one another earnestly, fervently. That is, have a longing and a desire and a hunger to love one another. It's not just, do I have to love them? But it is, thank you, God, that I get to love them. Thank you, God, that I get to invest my life in this person so that your spirit in me can flow into their life and, and together we can lift up the praises, the honor, and the glory of God. Love one another earnestly and fervently. In other words, it's not just, well, if I get a chance to love somebody, I think I will. It ought to be, God, send me a chance to love somebody the way Jesus loves me. Just send me an opportunity that I can carry the name of Jesus into a relationship and reflect the fact that he died for me and he loved me that much, and I can just show somebody that love. Because the answer to the question of how do I get from, from just knowing what I should do and knowing that I should do it to actually getting up and doing it is simply this, to know and to love Jesus Christ more and more and more. Let me, um, let me then suggest to you, you know, how do we do that? You know, just uh, three things, no poem, but three things. The first is, live a born-again life. That is, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, and you cannot say with certainty that you have given your heart to Christ to forgive you of your sins, that the first step is to ask him into your heart to be Lord and Savior. The very first thing you need in your life is Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. Come to the cross and accept him. Now, as a believer in Christ, 
live a born-again life. Understand that being a Christian, being a believer in Christ, isn't a part of life. It's life itself. It's not just something we turn to as a resource in life. It is life itself. And so live a born-again life in which everything about you is focused on the glory of the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, I think, is sort of what what we talked about when we uh, were looking at that as strangers and aliens in a foreign land, that we live in the hope of grace. This defines our life. Live in the hope of grace. And then, secondly, strive for a pure heart. And that is a heart that is purged of the things of the world, purged of self and self-centeredness, and folks, purged of the popular nonsense that passes for wisdom. But rather a, word, a, a, a soul, a, a, a pure life that is brought before God that he alone would define who you are. This is what we talked about when we were looking at, at living in holiness. That's what we're talking about. Living a holy life, holy life that is uh, reflective of the character and the very nature of God. Thirdly, long for a life of integrity that is free of hypocrisy and a life that very much wants God's glory to shine from beginning to end in all that you are and all that you say and all that you do. This is what we talked about last week when we talked about living in the fear of God. It is the fear of, of what happens when we depart from the character and the nature of God himself. So live in the fear of God. Long for that kind of integrity, to love others as he has loved us. And then wrap your life in the word of God. Absolutely wrap your life uh, in the word of God. Um, that means things like Bible study, Bible reading, but more than that, it means listening for the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit prompts your heart and brings to your mind a word of Scripture, brings to your mind the reality of Christ. You know, when you're confronted in that situation, and you want to go that way, and the Word of God says, what would you have done if Jesus behaved like you right now? And you turn around and you go back to where you ought to be. Wrap your life in the Word of God. See, we ought to love each other, we know that. Uh, here's how we ought to love each other, forgiving, kind, sympathetic, all that. We know that. The problem is getting up and doing it. And the glory of it all is that we can get up and do it because God first sent his son to us and first called us, and therefore we are responding to him. And again, if you try this on your own, you're going to get frustrated. If you're moved and, and motivated and guided by the power of the Holy Spirit, then it works together. It's God's doing, God's grace, because God gets all the glory for it all. So let's love one another. Let's love one another with an earnestness that's born out of a clean heart, with a fervor to reflect the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because how we love one another is the, a, is the reflection of how well we have learned the love of God. For us. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, your love is, is just overwhelming in all that it, it means to us, but overwhelming, Father, in all that it has accomplished in us. 
But being the people that we are, too often we would just like to take your love and run with it. Just take your love and enjoy it as a private possession. Father, how, how easy it is for us to just follow a path of life where we think we're at the center of it all. Teach us to love one another as you have loved us. Teach us to love one another the way Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Father, teach us to love one another the way your Holy Spirit pours your love into our hearts. So you would get the glory, the praise, and the honor in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Quickly respond to the call of God's grace as we sing.